Hello, I'm Devin, and you're listening to Tools and Craft, a series of conversations with the designers, engineers, and inventors who are shaping computing as we know it. Today, I'm talking with Omar Rizwan. Omar spends his time thinking about, writing about, and building new computer interfaces and ways of programming. He's worked at Brett Victor's lab Dynamic Land, Stripe, and Khan Academy. He's also the creator of Screenotate, a tool that captures the text and origin of your screenshots to your file system. Omar also created TabFS, a browser extension that mounts your browser tabs as a file system on your computer. I'm also very lucky to call Omar one of my closest friends, and in the years since we met in college, the daily drip of Omar-isms in my group chats has been a major influence on the way I think about computers, tools, and beyond. So Omar, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I've been really looking forward to this. Thanks, Devin. It's really fun to be here. So what's an example of a computer interaction that you think would be better with haptic feedback? On your computer, on your laptop, or on your phone, you know, there are a lot of objects, like there are, there are windows and there are tabs and there are files. And I feel like I, I often like, I want the feeling of like, I just want to like pick up this window and move it around and like feel where it is. I don't know if that counts as haptic feedback in the like narrow sense of, you know, there's a, there's a vibration motor in your phone and having it vibrate when you do something. But I think that sense of like being able to actually touch things in the computer and use this sense that isn't just your eyes. That's something that I find myself wanting a lot. Why, why is that important? Often the way I think about computing is more like there's some feeling that I have that I want at like this gut level. The ability to move things around by feel, like we've been like using our fingers and hands for, you know, since we were apes. And there are, I feel like there are a lot of subtle things about them that you don't get when you're just kind of manipulating a touchscreen or a mouse and using your eyes to point things out. Yeah, it seems like a lot of computer and software design is done by like, what's sort of the optimal way to do something or some like very measurable thing, which is very useful. Uh, Measuring things is very helpful, but it can sort of discount the day to day feel and just what what mood does this put you in? What kinds of things are you more likely to do? It also comes out of like a particular history and like particular uh, technological constraints of like, well, we can make a mouse because we can make, you know, the sensors to make a mouse. We can put the two potentiometers inside the mouse so you can detect where it's moving on the X and Y axis. Like, so it's like it's easy to make a mouse and it's maybe hard to make something that's really haptically rich. And so there's this technical constraint preventing us from doing it. And also, I wonder if there are kind of cultural constraints with like the way our culture like thinks about what does it mean to interact with the world? And like if we if our if we come out of a different cultural background, would they have thought different things were important? What if you had like an Islamic computer where you know there's some prohibition on displaying pictures of people and pictures of animals so it becomes this completely vector display where you can only draw kind of abstract shapes like what what does that what would that look like that's sort of positing an alternate history and then the other example i think about is in the 1980s is we had a bunch of personal computers here in the u.s like uh, the apple ii and ibm pc and in japan there was a completely different um, set of dominant personal computers from Japanese companies. And those computers tended to, have, tended to have much more developed graphics. Because of the way that the Japanese writing system works, you need better graphics to be able to do basic things. Whereas in the US, you know, because we just have an alphabet, you don't, you don't really need that rich uh, graphical system. So that, so that only developed later for us. This reminds me a little bit of a recent essay that you wrote, but there was a footnote in it about how the speed at which a printer prints a piece of, pa- a piece of paper really changes how you feel about it and how mm-hmm. you end up using it. Yeah. Um, you pointed out that like Polaroids and receipt 
printers have a certain lightness and post-it note to them mm -hmm. compared to a laser printer that might take like 30 seconds to print the same document. Yeah. Like what, what changes when you feel like you can print things really quickly? When you think you can, when you feel like you can print things really quickly, it becomes something that you do in the course of you working on something. Like while you're working on the thing, you're like, I'm going to print out this little thing because it'll only take a second. And you kind of have these ephemeral objects and they also feel, um, and you can also have it closer to you, right? If it's a smaller printer. So it, it becomes part of your working process in a way that I think a laser printer does not. And I think that th that kind of makes sense too, because if you think about like, what is a laser printer optimized for it's like it's really optimized for sitting in the middle of an office and printing out these long multi-page documents and that's actually like a different use case from a lot of what i'm interested in with computing inspired by a lot of the things you've talked about i've actually i bought a computer for my office but i find that i've been just like papering my walls with different things ever since then and it is different versus like I could, you know, print something at the like FedEx near my house. Right. That's like the extreme. Right. That's like the extreme version of, of that is like, yeah, you can always just like batch everything and go to FedEx once a week and print it. But you're not going to print the same things if that's your workflow. You know, your screen is a limited space. And if you have a printer and if you can print things, you now have a much expanded space, you know, effectively that you can work in because you can have everything kind of spread around your desk. If you have something that's printed out, you now have all the tools of the physical world that you can apply to it. And this is something we talked about at Dynamic Land a lot, is that now I can mark it up and put post-it notes on it and like maybe even cut it up and make collages or like juxtapose it with other things. And those those things are all, you know, fairly hard to do on a computer. It's very awkward when, you know, you have 50% of your work in physical stuff and 50% of your work in digital stuff because crossing that boundary is relatively hard whether that means printing things or scanning things or whatever. This is part of the long range vision of what you would want to do with a system like that, where you have, you know, you can have holographic, if you have objects on your computer, you can have holographic, like projected versions of them on your desk. And then you can suck them into physical objects if you want to physicalize them, or you could turn them back into holographic objects if you have the physical object. This idea of, because the computer exists in the physical space, it's a lot easier to just cross the digital physical boundary just by pointing at things in the space where they are instead of needing to have a computing device. The space of input output devices that exists is kind of artificially constrained somehow. Like there's mm -hmm. just not that many things that have at least hit mainstream. There's probably like a lot of different types of input devices, but and output devices, but people just don't really use them. This is like a really interesting area. So I was just looking at the, a few months ago, I was just looking at the PlayStation 5. They have this new haptic controller. It's, it's like a normal game controller with the buttons and the joysticks and stuff, but it has, number one, it has a really rich, precise haptic motor, kind of like the Nintendo Switch has one of these two, and the iPhone also has, I think, a pretty good one. So you can feel, uh, the games can generate like really fine vibrations to indicate if you're like walking over something that's vibrating or if you're, if you got shot or whatever. So you, can, so you get this really fine feedback with a lot of precision and a lot of variation. And the, uh, the shoulder buttons, like the, the L and R buttons basically, uh, have these motors in them. So you can actually feel, so you, the game can actually make you feel different things as you're pressing those shoulder buttons. So you can mm. feel like you're pressing on a spring or you can feel like, like you're pressing on something that has two stops in it. So your finger goes down and then it stops and you have to press harder to get the other stop because the, motor, the, the motors in the L and R buttons can be programmed to resist in different ways. I think this is a really big part of why the iPhone feels so good to people is because Apple really spends a lot of time thinking about all of those interactions and like trying to physicalize it as much as possible. One of my favorite interactions is um, on the left-hand side of the iPhone, there's like a little toggle, like mm -hmm. there's a physical hardware toggle. And mm -hmm. when you 
have this all the sounds on and you toggle it on and off it makes this like click sounds and like and there must be some haptic feel going on as well because mm-hmm. it, it it almost it feels like i'm like cocking a gun or something like yeah. that right <laughs> and it's right. like so satisfying uh it, it, this like heavy metal feeling um and i think that 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 takes like a really a ton of work to do consistently throughout an entire interface. And it, it feels sort of like superficial. Who cares how it feels? Like if it, the whole point is that it just locks, right? So as long as it's functional, yeah. why do you need right, it? Right. I also feel like if an interaction like that is satisfying, that actually gives you a different relationship with, you know, I, I kind of want to make more things that are just toys where it's like fun to interact with the thing, because I feel like that's, that actually sets like a very high bar of like, you know, a game can be fun because it has a story or it has cool characters or there's a scoring system or something. But a toy has to be fun to play with, you know, just because it's fun to play with just from the interactions themselves. Totally. We recently had an episode with Jonathan Blow, the video game designer, Mm -hmm. and he's really obsessed with performance of his video games and making sure they feel really good. And he was making a similar point that like if it doesn't feel really good, people will just leave because like they don't need to be playing your game compared to like work software or something or that their boss like made them use like they have to use that right i was looking at like what are the haptics like in android phones and as far as i know they're like they're like really not even close Um, like apple has spent Mm -hmm. uh considerable extra extra money that maybe isn't justified uh on paper to to have like because it takes like extra space in the phone i think to have like a really good haptic motor and that's obviously uh, at a premium it's not something that they talk about either, right? It's not in any of the advertising, anything like that. But but you go into the, the Apple store, you pick it up and you just feel it instantly. If, if we were to focus more on the history of computing on IO devices, like mm-hmm. terminals, displays, printers, all of those things, instead of on computers and, and sort of computing history that as it's normally done, mm-hmm. how would that change the way that designers create interfaces? It would open up a lot of this discussion that we've had. Like, I think a lot of the, the reason why there hasn't been much movement in computer interfaces, like there was the iPhone and there's the desktop computer. And basically those interface paradigms have been the same uh, since each of them was introduced, right? They're not really, you know, your desktop right now is not really that different from the 1984 Mac. And I, I kind of have this hypothesis that um, a lot of the reason for that stagnation is that there's been a stagnation in IO devices that you have your monitor and you have your keyboard and you have your mouse or your trackpad. And with the constraint that you have a monitor, keyboard and mouse, you can't actually do that much better than you know Windows and icons and apps and stuff because the IO devices actually impose uh, quite a bit of constraint on what you can do. Why has there been a stagnation in IO devices? I guess this is kind of an industry or business question. I think we've gotten really good at making displays, keyboards and mice. Once you have a market where there's millions of people buying computers, you also need to be compatible with that market, right? And so it's hard to do really new things because everybody wants to have their word processing and their spreadsheets, and those are pieces of software that you have to support. Like some of the examples of things that I think we're constrained away from doing are like really rich spatial interfaces, like the sort of zoomable giant canvas UI, I think are pretty awkward with the mouse and keyboard. I think Visual programming is pretty awkward with the mouse and keyboard where you have, you know, blocks or boxes with wires between them. A lot of the kind of weird ideas for programming that don't just involve typing in a text editor, I think are one of the reasons that they haven't taken off more is that it's really annoying to use these with the mouse and keyboard because you have to drag one thing at a time. Touch screens are, can be a little bit better for this, like an yeah, iPad. I think so. But then those also feel kind of clumsy. Like it, it can feel fine for relatively big blocks, but you can't do that much detail. One type of input device you've used a lot is uh, projectors. What mm-hmm. are the sorts of things that 
projectors lend themselves to that normal monitors don't so much? The first thing that comes to mind is that projectors let you work on a much bigger scale. You know, you just point, you just, as long as the projector is far enough away, you can cover a lot more area. There is something that feels more humane or something about that, where you're, the scale is more in accord with your whole body and you're not just kind of crouched around this desk like you are with a laptop or even with a piece of paper or a book. So there's the big thing. I mean, you can overlay objects in the world. I mean, this is a lot of what we were doing at Dynamic Land. I think, it, I think actually a lot of the potential of projectors is a little bit underplayed. In my mind, the stereotypical use of projectors is still like you have your PowerPoint on the wall of your office and, and you're like clicking through it. And I think you could do a lot more. It's a lot easier to have like multi-person interactions. So you've mentioned dynamic land a few times. Some people listening probably aren't familiar with what that is. Can you describe what dynamic land is? Dynamic Land is a research project where I worked for a couple of years, which is started by Brett Victor, who's this sort of interface researcher. And the goal of the project is to create sort of communal physical computer. So Dynamic Land itself lives in this building in uh, downtown Oakland. So it has sort of this whole floor. And the idea is you can leave you when you go into Dynamic Land, you can leave your laptop at home. And instead, the whole building is basically a single computer. And so the way that works concretely is that there are all these tables around the space, the Dynamic Land space. Uh, and above each table, there's a camera, and there are cameras and projectors. And so rather than having a laptop and a mouse and a keyboard and a screen, you have objects on these tables that you're moving around. And that's what actuates the computer. And the computer can like project information on the tables. So rather than having, you know, virtual objects like files and windows and stuff on your screen, you have physical objects, which are usually right now pieces of paper. And you can move around those physical objects and point them at each other. The other key part of the dynamic land system, and I was I was talking to you before about how I think I think a lot of people miss this, even if they come in and see it, is that it's also it's a full programming system. So all of the pieces of paper, all the objects on the table, on the tables in the space, like every object is a little computer program. And you can take a keyboard off the shelf and point it at one of those objects and reprogram it to do something else. So, so the goal is that everybody who comes in should know or learn how to program, and it's sort of just part of the social the social aspect of the space, that this is also a programming space. That's something that's really novel about it. Like there have been, you know, physical computing systems in the past where, you know, there's a whole wall that's activated or, you know, there, there are projection mapped objects. But I think this further aspect of you can also reprogram the system inside the system without having your laptop or your desktop. I think that's something that's really new. And that's like a kind of philosophical thing that I carry over to a lot of other things that I'm doing now. If you had a full dynamic land set up at home, what would you use it for? Ideally, you use it for whatever you use your laptop and phone for right now. You use it for your normal work. That's really the goal of the system is to be a computer in, in the full sense of the word. And so it's not it's not supposed to be just an educational system or a kind of toy, it's supposed to be the actual system that you're working inside. What are the current limitations of dynamic land to reach that goal at the moment? I mean, I think it depends on your priorities and who you ask. I think, I think there are, there are, and this, this is what uh, the team is working on, has been working on for the last while is there are a lot of technical constraints. So there's a lot of engineering to do in terms of making more of it reprogrammable allowing more kinds of objects that aren't just pieces of paper. Those are really important because I think when people see, when people go to a website or they see demos of something, they really anchor on to whatever concrete examples they see and they kind of extrapolate from that. Like, what is this whole system about? 
So I think having more kinds of examples of what you can do with the system is pretty important. And that's a lot of the technical work we're doing. I mean, a lot of the things that I ran into where I felt limited were like thinking about like, what do I do on my laptop? And that's like, you know, I talk to my friends, I use Twitter, uh, I read books and PDFs and articles. And a lot of those things weren't possible in the dynamic land system, you know, for various reasons. So I, I think that that that's like a concrete, those are like concrete examples of things that you might want to do where, you know, maybe you don't have the internet connectivity or you don't have the, pres- the high resolution rendering or like the tracking of physical books or, you know, whatever you would need to be able to do those kinds of tasks. Instead, instead it was very much bottom up, like we're making these demonstrations of things you can do in the system, but not necessarily porting workflows from, from the existing computer. What are aspects of the system that seem really important about dynamic land, but are actually sort of incidental and could have been done in a totally different way? The things that people fixate on when they first see the system are the least important things. So for example, there are these colored dots that are used to track the pieces of paper. Like if you ever go and see a picture of dynamic land or a video or something, that'll probably be the first thing you notice is the colored dots. They're like really this, this like icon or logo of the system. And those are like completely incidental. And I, I, they have, you could make a system that was, that to me would be like recognizably a dynamic land based system and not have colored dots. And conversely, you could make a system that had colored dots that, that I would, that does not have any of the interesting properties of the dynamic land system. So to change gears a little bit, you mentioned when you were talking about dynamic land, about how it's social. And I know, remember you've talked to me a lot about how CS107E, the, the class that you taught at Stanford mm-hmm. titled Computer Systems from the Ground Up was a really, the, the office hours for that were a very social space. What did that look like and how did people interact in that space? This was the sort of second or third class you'd take in CS. And so you'd kind of, you'd get taught C and, and systems programming and, and uh, stuff like that. And it was this experimental version of the class where set up meetings or like you kind of knew that there was this gathering point where people would be anyway. If I were to go back to college, I would try to filter on the class size and ratio of staff and faculty. I think I really didn't appreciate that as a student until maybe my like second or last year of school where I started taking more of those small classes. Those classes were almost always so much better. I wish someone had told me that when I were 18. Whenever you have like a, like personal relationships that are involved where, you know, people know who you are and, you know, you're trying to press them or you're, you know, you're friends with them or whatever. Like, I feel like that creates a much stronger relationship with the material and it makes, it's like a lot more motivating than if you're just part of this machine and you're sitting in this lecture hall. Definitely. I I mean, I think like this, I found that this is true also for learning languages where Mm -hmm. I've become a lot more motivated in the last few years to, to like really get good at Spanish Mm -hmm. because uh, my significant other is, is uh, from a Spanish speaking country. So like the idea of being able to speak with his mom is like really, really incredibly motivating versus in, in school. It was like, it was cool. I mean, I was, I enjoyed learning Spanish, but it was not in the deep, the depths of my heart kind of thing. I guess it's funny because it this way of thinking really, like it makes me a lot less interested in a lot of things about education or pedagogy than I think I would have been, you know, maybe 10 years ago, because it feels to me like that's like never the important, like the important part is always the motivation part and the like social part of why you're learning the thing. One of the biggest things is if it feels like you have to switch modes to use the thing, like the example that I've brought up in the past is when I was this class, you know, often people would have these really nasty bugs in their programs. And 
they would always, always, always put off using the debugger to like track down that bug. And we would always like kind of try to push them to use the debugger. And they would like really put it off until the last minute. Like they would insert print statements or they would make the thing blink or whatever. That's really telling. Like that tells you there's something wrong with this workflow or interaction of like switching to the debugger. And I think it is, and I think people do dread it. And I think they dread it because it's like you have to go off into this different world to invoke the debugger. Um, you know, you you have your like normal ways of doing things where you like write your program and your text editor and you compile it and you send it to the Raspberry Pi. But now you have to stop all that. And you have to go use this weird debugger thing that has like, it has completely different commands. You run it in a different way. You're all, yeah, I also, you're kind of like, you're admitting to yourself that you can't figure it out. Like there, I think there's also a sort of ego thing to that, but yeah, this sense that you, you have to stop what you're doing, that it's this cliff and you have to do something different. I think that generates a lot of dread. And I think that's often associated with tools like debuggers or profilers or whatever, where it's like, it's outside your normal interaction with the programming system. Is that something that is sort of like inherent to the entire idea of a debugger as we think about it? Or is it something that like you think we could, if, if we tried to design a debugger with that idea in mind, we could make just like a way better debugger? I think you could do a lot better. I mean, I think the word debugger is a little bit unfortunate. And I think I've, I think someone, it might've been my, my friend Will on Twitter was talking about this, like the word debugger almost suggests this whole workflow already. So maybe you would, wouldn't call it a debugger. If the question is like, how can we, like, I think the basic question is like, how can we see what our programs are doing and like be aware of that and see why they're going wrong? And I think like the debugger right now, like that's the thing that happens to be able to answer that question and like give you that information. But you can imagine other ways, like maybe that information is just sort of ambiently present when you're running the program and you just sort of see things pop up and you don't have to like explicitly go in and interact. Also one really big step, it's just like, even thinking to use it because you, you mm -hmm. kind of what is related to what you were saying about having to go into a different mode or like a completely different tool where when you're in one tool, you're kind of like flowing, you're, you're right. in a flow and it like right. one step kind of naturally leads to the other. You see something on the screen, you react to it. And to go into a debugger, you also, you have to like, be, you have to stop yourself and be like, Hey, a this new thing called a debugger would be useful right now. I should right. go use that. Um, right. And so it's also just like, it may not even cross your mind because there's not like a strong, you don't have a strong habit buildup or any, any visual stimuli that would push you towards that. Right. And there's also like a threshold of like, oh, you're, you're kind of like trading off in your head. I think the whole time, like, oh, can I fix this without having to go into the debugger? Cause if I fix it without having to go into the debugger, all I need to do is just add this like incremental print statement or like, there's kind of things I can do at the margin that maybe, and you're trying to figure out like, is this enough or do I have to go into the debugger? One of the things I really liked about office hours in college was everyone would understand different parts pretty well. And you could, you would like sit around a big table and work on problems together and like talk about them. And you would walk, you would each walk out sort of having picked up the expertise from somebody else. You've talked about this sort of like idea of like local experts, or uh, I think someone responded to one of your tweets saying like, it reminds them of heist movies, how mm -hmm. like there's, you know, yeah. the, the tiny person who crawls in the spaces and there's like the big strong guy or whatever. Like, can you talk a little bit about that concept and, and like your experience working with different people with different superpowers? I think the tweet in which this came up was talking about like literacy and maybe driving. People often make this comparison that the programming is like literacy. It's like being able to read and write. And I think what comes with that comparison is this, like, it's kind of like a problematic 
view of what it means of like what literacy meant historically, where, you know, not many people could read or write. And it was sort of a, a superpower to read and write. And it like made you better than everyone else or, you know, gave you access to things that you didn't have access to before. And I think this is actually like a weird, like this is sort of problematic, like individualistic view of what it means to have a skill where you're the guy with literacy and, and, th and that lets you do all kinds of things when really, and th I think this was pointed out by this art historian on Twitter, often there would be someone in the community who is like the person who knew how to read and write and they would, that would gave them certain responsibilities to the rest of the community. And so it's the community as a whole, maybe that is the right unit of analysis, like the village or the neighborhood in the town or whatever. Maybe that's the right unit of analysis rather than the individual person. In the past, we've talked about how hanging out in a system for a really long time can help you understand things about that system that you don't get from really shallow engagement. What's something that you learned by spending a lot of time in a particular system? I guess there's two systems that come to mind, but the one that I'll talk about first is this text editor, Acme, that I used for actually an entire summer. So Acme is the built-in text editor for the Plan 9 operating system, which was this research operating system from Bell Labs. So it was, it was sort of meant to be the successor to Unix. And it was built in the 80s. And like Unix has VI or Nano, like it has these built-in text editors. And so the Plan 9 equivalent of those is Acme. And Acme is really interesting because you're supposed to use the mouse in it as much as possible. So it, it, I kind of like this like subversive aspect of it that rather than being this hardcore computer thing of like, you stay on the keyboard all the time. It's no, you, you stay on the mouse all the time. It is a much more flexible interface. I mean, you can find demos of it online. It's a much more flexible interface than really, I think almost any like graphical program I've ever used, where as you're working, as you're editing your files in Acme, you know, as you're programming, whatever, whatever you're doing in the text editor, you kind of build up this workspace and you build up this palette of the operations you've been doing, you can middle click on anything in the program to execute it. At first, you're typing in a bunch of commands and then middle clicking them to execute them. But over time, you've built up this palette of all the commands you've already typed in and you just click on them again to execute them again. So you're, so you're actually developing this interface for the specific thing that you're doing right now. And it just feels much more flexible and powerful and like tuned you know, to the hour or to the day that you're working rather than I think most text editors where you can make a keyboard shortcut, but you're not going to do that unless it's something you really, really are doing all the time. I see. Like it sort of accretes and, and builds up around you as you use it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like at very small scales too, not just at the scale of weeks or months or like whenever you get around to customizing your text editor, like you're kind of always customizing it all the time for what you're currently doing. And you're doing it implicitly by just using it as opposed to having to make a decision. Right, right. I, I would almost compare that to like the like what I think is cool about this about Screenitate, which is a screenshot app I make, which is that like you don't have to go off and do something else. You kind of just do the obvious normal thing, and then that just pays dividends. It's an app for Mac and Windows, and I'll just describe the Mac workflow. So basically, on your Mac, you, there's a keyboard shortcut you can use to take a screenshot, and you can post you can post screenshots on Twitter or send it to someone, and everybody who has a Mac can do this. And what Screenitate does is it you install it on your computer and it hooks into that keyboard shortcut that you use to take screenshots. So you don't have to do anything differently than what you're already doing. And now once you have Screenitate, every time you take a screenshot, Screenitate will save it and it will recognize the text inside the screenshot. And it'll recognize like if the title, the title of the file it's from or the URL that the screenshot's from, like whatever kind of information it can find about where you got that screenshot from, it'll save alongside the screenshot. So 
uh, after you have you've had it installed for a while, uh, you end up with this whole trove, this whole archive of like things you've sent people or things you've posted or things you've saved. Um, like I have thirty thousand screenshots, I think now in a, and you can search you can you can search for particular phrases or you can search for websites that things are from, and and they just pop up immediately. So it becomes this very powerful, flexible. It's almost like a note taking system in a way, but it's all oriented around taking screenshots, which is this gesture that you're already doing. If you're like me, you're already doing it all the time anyway, and this just gives you all this extra functionality for free. I really like looking back in my screen notate folder every once in a while. It's probably like once every two months, I'll just sort of peruse it. And I'll be like, oh, that's right. I was like thinking about this or I was talking about that. And it also has a social aspect where for me, it cues towards things I'm sharing with other people. Yeah. And so it also reminds me like, oh, that's right. I was talking to my friend Omar about this. Uh, that's so nice. And I, I always smile a little bit as I look through it. Yeah. It has all these, like a screenshot has all this rich context, like emotional context with it. And it's funny, like, I kind of wonder also if it's like, like the fact that it is an image and it's like from this very concrete, if I, if I have a screenshot of like me talking to you in 20, 2015 or whatever, like that'll have the original like Facebook Messenger from 2015 font and layout and stuff like it. Or if I have a screenshot from the New York Times, it'll have the New York Times font from whatever year it's from. Like it has, it is this like extremely concrete image and that I think carries a lot of history with it in a way that like if it were copied and pasted into my notes or something, it wouldn't. The websites are often like surprisingly brittle and like the archive on your computer is often like the thing that survived. Like, I feel like I have, a, actually, this would be an interesting thing to check. I feel like I have a lot of screenshots where like the original website is now gone and like maybe my screenshot is the only archive of it. Every once in a while, Google Photos will g give me a little push notification and be like, hey, we found a bunch of screenshots. You want us to delete them? And this sort of implication is like, they're useless, of course. Isn't it so nice of us to help you throw away your trash? And there's there's a part of me that's like, hey, that's almost offensive. Like, right. this stuff is like not garbage. It's actually it's actually really like important to me. Right. But it makes me think that maybe other people don't don't use screenshots in the same way. Or maybe Google's just like really out of touch. I don't know. I feel like if you spend a lot of time on your computer or your phone, like your screenshots, like they're just as important as your photo gallery of like photos you took in real life, right? Like it's like what you were doing. That's what your screenshots mean. One of the, the phrases that you throw around sometimes when talking about screenotate and screenshots and also other other types of technologies and workflows is the idea of folk practices. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that means and like what some examples are? I don't know if I have a definition of it, but it means kind of things people do on the computer, especially like end users, like non-programmers, things people do that are not like you wouldn't think of that as the right way to do this thing, but it's somehow a lot of people end up doing it. For example, like taking a screenshot of something to save it instead of like saving the web page or copying the text somewhere, there is something that feels a little bit wrong about it, right? Because it's like the screenshot doesn't have the text in it usually. And it's like kind of a lossy thing and it's it's like just this flat image or like sometimes when i'm sitting on the train people will come in and they'll take a photo of the map on the train wall with their phone and then the the, the map is now like in their photo gallery and i kind of think that's like kind of a folk practice because in some sense the right way to get the map on your phone is to like download an app or like go on the train system website and like get the map pdf but i think there's something to learn from that because it's like it seems like that's actually easier and better than trying to get the PDF for that. Like there's some, there's a reason that people do the folk practice. It seems related to trust to me, or at least the answers you gave, examples mm -hmm. that you gave, because like, you know, maybe I, I, I have the experience often of, I pull up a map on Google maps and it's actually like really good. And it gives me all the information I need, but I don't quite trust that 
Google Maps won't crash at like some really important time. Um, and so I take a screenshot of it just in case like I lose signal or something like that. Right. Whereas I'm pretty sure if I had complete trust that Google Maps would never crash, I would probably not do that. I think it's also this sense that I also talk about this with files. Like there's this sense that a screenshot on your phone, like this is like an object, like it has, it's in your photo gallery. You know how to work with it. It has like this physics that you understand. It has these operations that you know how to do to it. And like, you know, it's going to be there. You know how to get to it. You know, it's not going to like suddenly go away or like get lost if you happen to search for a different address like Google Maps might. I think that's like what engenders trust. And I think there's there's not there's like way fewer things than there should be on your phone or on your computer that have that kind of objectness to them. It feels a little bit like with really dynamic interfaces, they have all of these pros where, you know, they can respond to your input and, you know, all, all the obvious nice things. But they also kind of feel like you're like renting the space or something. Instead right, of right. Owning yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like like Google Maps, is, I, I think, is a, is a great example, actually, because it's like it can only really be in one place at a time. And you're kind of at least I often find myself like juggling, like, do I want to give up my state here so I can like go look up something else? And like, is that worth it? Yeah, I guess it's also like this app model where the app is like one thing and it takes over your phone screen and it can only have one state at a time. Like if you could have multiple copies of Google Maps or whatever, I mean, this is more common on the desktop, but still, I, mean, I guess you had multiple tabs or whatever. It's, it feels like very much like Google is, is in control. You know, like you can do those kinds of things with photos or like photos give you those kinds of properties that you don't have with normal software. So for this next part, I'm going to list a few tweets and then I'm going to ask you a question about them. Number one, what paint sign on unfinished parts of the program UI? It can mm -hmm. smudge up your mouse pointer or your finger if you're not careful. <laughs> so tweet number two, spending a month walking from one end of the code base to the other. Tweet number three, the unclosable tab. Tweet number four, a pop-up window as a kind of genie. And I, these could go on and on. I actually collected like 20 of them. Um, and I think there were probably even more that I just didn't find. Kind of, I kind of been meaning to like go through and like, <laughs> I don't even know, like some kind of collecting activity. I don't, I don't even know what, what the upshot of it would be, but. What do these, what, what, what do all of these have in common? I think that they're all about trying to take stuff in the computer and like give them some of the richness and like texture and embodiment of things in the real world where and scale also where everything on the computer is kind of pristine and closed and perfect and you can't touch it and it doesn't decay and it like all kind of fits like in this like 11 inch rectangle and i think a lot of what i try to do on twitter is to try and subvert that or like poke fun at it or whatever and say like you know, like, what if you could walk around your code base? Like, it's like your code base is like more complicated than a lot of buildings that you walk around in. Like, why shouldn't you be able to feel that at your body scale? Or like, you know, why shouldn't you have wet paint on your application if it's not done in the same way that a wall would have wet paint on it? Because I mean, it's the same, like, you know, it, it has the same property of like, it's not finished yet. And like, why can't you feel that in a visceral way? Yeah, the material doesn't really tell you like about its state or, or yeah. And it's, I guess, like wet paint, like that's kind of accidental, but I still kind of want it, right? Like, <laughs> it's not necessarily something that is desirable about the real world, but at the same time, there is some something nice about having all these side channels and, and and like little ways to indicate information without people having to explicitly like put signs up. What inputs do you put into your brain to come up with stuff like this? I mean, I, I think a lot of it is from the experience of 
living and like working with systems like Acme or Dynamic Land. You know, I spent two years with Acme. I spent a summer with. I like. I think that gives you a very deep feeling of like how you could do things on the computer and like ways of thinking about computing. And, and I think that's like a feeling that you only get from really being immersed in the thing. Like, I don't think it's something that you get from like reading about the system or writing about the system. I, I think it's something that can only come out of immersion. I feel like now when I use the computer, when I'm like on Twitter or I'm programming something or whatever, like there's a part of me that has this constant low level, like frustration uh, about like a lot of different things that like, why can't I, you know, just like do this? Like, why can't I have like these multiple things? Why can't I trust that the computer is going to work? Why can't, you know, when I'm programming, like, why can't I just like see what's going on? Why can't I like get the data that I need from this other place and have it here or like see it so that I can see if my program's going wrong. And I feel like a lot of what I tweet comes out of like, I'm doing something and I have this feeling that I want something, I want this to work in a different way. What should we do to work towards those goals? A lot of what I do is trying to provoke people and make these little, sometimes they're demos, sometimes they're just like these striking images. I think that that's probably a first step is like, I'm relatively opposed to trying to articulate like a philosophy or have a manifesto or something of like what should be done. I'm much more drawn toward like, okay, let's have this set of really striking images, really striking, really concrete images of like this would be something that would be that would be cool or that would feel good in a way that we want. And like having that in the back of your head as an anchor for like what computing could be like. So I think that's kind of a first step. I think it takes it takes a lot of work to to make new user interfaces and new ways of computing. And there are a lot of things that are in your way. Maybe we just have to work through it or maybe there can be better tools to, to help us program stuff. But I think that is often the reason that we don't see more. Why do you prefer the striking images approach as opposed to the manifesto approach? I have this implicit assumption that like this is the way people think is that they anchor on to if they hear an image or an idea and they can picture it in their head. Like that's something that they'll keep coming back to. Whereas a philosophy or a set of rules, it's satisfying to write, but I don't know if it's really as creatively useful as as ha just having a bunch of images. And then may you know maybe later, maybe in like, a few years, I can articulate a philosophy, but I, I, I think that the images are the important thing. So I think something with, with sort of verbalized principles is they they can sound like very clear descriptions, like yeah. a clear test that you can apply. Yeah. But then when it comes to actually building something, it's a lot less clear if you are like meeting that principle or opposing that principle. Company values at tech, tech companies often have this problem where you'll be like in a meeting and you know, you're trying to decide between A and B and then some, one person's like, well, A follows our company values more because right. blah, 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 blah. And the other, other person's like, no, B is actually more. And, and, and they're, neither of them is like totally wrong, or at least as, as the principles are written. Right, right. Versus I think if you have a very concrete example in front of you, you can be like, well, this thing is more like that thing. And they, they share these, these characteristics um, and, it, and it's more concrete. Now, like items are very high dimensional. So like that starts to fall apart at some point too. I think principles are floss like they're often they're like the ashes or like the the excreted like product of actually there's this really rich thing in your head and and you try to write it down as principles but you're really not getting most of it. Or like if other people get it that's because they've managed to like reconstruct the thing that's in your head. But it's like mostly not actually in the written text. In your head, you know, where you have this really rich like aesthetic sense, you know, it's not actually an iron law but you just 
or, or like you would be willing to trade it off against other things because you have this holistic sense of like what you think is good. But when you write it down, it becomes this really kind of reduced, this really reduced, rigid set of principles. And universalizing too. C- computers, I feel like don't have to be this way, but the way they've kind of worked out in the last few decades is that they're very universalizing. Right. It's like there's one piece of software in a domain that like everybody uses, you know, millions of people use this thing. And I think like full computer kind of part of the goal is to like mitigate or push against that. There's all the goals of like hitting web scale or whatever, which is, I think a valid goal for, for a lot of different things, but I think it ends up undercutting a lot of smaller, more personal projects that you might do. I think Robin Sloan has a really good uh, description here. I think you've, I think you might've been the one to share this with me saying like, why don't we have more software projects that are like a homemade meal? Right, right. Yeah, you I've just seen that. make it that. for one or two other people. Right. like that. Often with these web scale things, it's like they're really, they're like way better than what was out there along one dimension or a few dimensions. And so it's like, it actually, you know, there's like good reasons to adopt them, but then you kind of lose a lot of other things or they, or you're just forced to adopt them by management. A lot of them are really fantastic. The thing that bums me out is they suck some of the air out of the room. So, because you can make, you can make a lot of money and, have a lot of success by making quote unquote web scale business or something like that. And so it ends up being that we don't pay as much attention to other things that the computer can do. Yeah. I mean, this also reminds me of like, we were talking about like IO versus computation. And I think a a related point is that like a lot of what people use computers for is not computation, but just like to talk to other people, you know, to communicate with other people, whether that's email or messaging or like making shared documents and so I think the question of like what software is on the computer is also a question about like, how do people relate to each other? How do people want to communicate? And, you know, maybe we don't want to give all of that up to just a few pieces of software. Like maybe people should have their own software that fits the way that they want to communicate with the particular society that they're in. What is some software that you would like to build that would be more like a homemade meal? I mean, I think to some extent, Screenitate is like this. I mean, it's definitely this shining example of like, I made this software for myself and I use it for myself. And that's still, I think the first test of like, whether I want to make some change to it is like, is this going to benefit the way that I use it? Another example is um, I have this browser extension TabFS. And one of the reasons I built it was because I was frustrated with the lack of the rigidity and the like lack of extensibility of my browser. And so one of the directions that I want to go with it is using it to like build little workflows or little extensions or scripts around the things I do on the computer that are like much lighter weight than building a whole browser extension, which I'm not going to do because it's a lot of work. And so TabFS hopefully would make those kinds of things possible. Can you share a little bit about what TabFS is? What's what's the sort of thing that you could do with TabFS that you couldn't do or, or it would be harder to do with a more traditional extension? Yeah. So TabFS is... It, it is a browser extension. Um, and what it does is it exposes everything, all the tabs that are open in your browser as files on your file system. So they're like synthetic files. So every tab you have open gets turned into a folder on your computer. Uh, and then there are files in it. So you can get like the HTML content of the tab and you can get like t- the title and you can, you know, poke things inside the tab, uh, send scripts to run inside it and stuff like this. So you can kind of go back and forth between your file system and your browser. And what that means is you can script your web browser just using whatever scripting languages you use on your on your normal computer. And they can just be one-line scripts or they can be little files or whatever. They don't have, and so you can get a lot of the effect of writing a whole browser extension, but just you know writing these little lightweight scripts. 
So I actually use it for a few things right now. I have a little indicator in my menu bar that tells me how many tabs I have open. And that's just like looking at how many folders are in the TabFS file system. So that's kind of nice. I just like click it every so often and, and uh, it refreshes and tells me that I have 30 tabs open or whatever. And then I also have some scripts. I write these email updates for my like, GitHub sponsors thing. And I run the scripts and it turns into a screenshot of that tweet and like gets embedded in what I'm writing. And so that uses TabFS to like go do the communication between, uh, you know, my text editor and the stuff in my text editor and the web browser where I have the tweet open. And that communication would actually be like pretty hard to do if I had to write full browser extension just to do that. That's really only possible or it's only worth the effort because TabFS already provides this communication layer where I can talk to the browser from the rest of my computer. Something I would love for you to do if you did like a Twitch stream or mm -hmm. some sort of video of you t talking through these like little tools that you've built here and there mm -hmm. and showing them and showing them how you use them. Because I think with a lot of these things, this is also true for your work at Dynamic Land, where I often find that it's like hard to follow exactly what's going on until I see a concrete example. Video is often a good medium for, for stuff like this. When you're writing or talking about something, you don't know like what the other person doesn't know. And you kind of, you often miss like important details that would actually help to fix their understanding. This is, I think, one place where screenshots really shine again too, where you can, there's like an, a whole context that you get, like not just the imagery and the, and the style, but like you, you get to see what the other person was seeing as opposed to a description of what the other person was seeing. Without the screenshot, like I think it's all, you often try to like explain the conceptual model first and that doesn't quite like it's, it can be better to just be very concrete and like give you a screenshot and be like, these are the things you click. Um, so I'm going to ask you just one closing question, uh -huh. um, which is what are three ideas that you've set aside that you would like to pursue in the future? So the first I only set aside a few months ago, it's this thing WebFork, which is this, it's sort of a web browser uh, that I was working on. And the idea is that you can fork tabs in the web browser like instantly in a few milliseconds. And so you can, if you're in a page, you can just make a copy of it and, and you can click something and open it in a new tab. Like you can click anything and open it in a new tab because new tabs can just be duplicated from the previous tabs. That's hard to explain, but that's, that's something that I want to get back on working on. And it has this longer term aspect of it, of being a browser that's under my control where I can monitor and kind of visualize like, what are these pages actually doing? And like, what are the connections that they're establishing to other places? And I don't know, there's a whole direction there that there are, there are a bunch of different directions there that I think are really interesting of like having operations that you can do to any tab and you know, having visualizations of a lot more of what's going on than your computer normally shows. The second thing is we talked a little bit about this, but I was messing with haptic stuff beginning of this year with the, the iPhone. There's a really great demo from Apple where you can, and you've played with it too, where you can bounce this ball off the sides of your phone by tilting it. And it's weirdly impressive. And it's just like this Apple example code. And I've, I've like not actually seen anything in a commercial app that's as good as that. And I, I feel like that shows the potential of these haptic systems. And I was also playing with the PS5 controller, which I think has mostly been reverse engineered now. And so thinking about new interfaces that use those, I mean, they were like very constrained. So like you, I think you really have to be careful to come up with something that feels good. Like they're really not, they're like these very non-intuitive rails of like what feels good and then what really doesn't feel good with those haptic systems. And also like they're designed for, you know, certain contexts, like moving a character around in a video game. But I, I feel like there's still a lot of things you could do.
which would give you a much more dynamic like development workflow. So you could like work like you're writing Python or Ruby or something like really, really quickly instead of waiting minutes or hours to compile your thing. And then also having languages that were like domain specific that could like rep represent specific concepts. And so this is only possible now because a lot of these have been reverse engineered and the hardware vendors are no longer like able to dictate how you program them. So, so that's, I think that's the, the that's the last of the three. Uh, and and th that also relates to my interest. We didn't talk a ton about this, but my interest in like computers where I really understand everything that's going on. And I think this is like one ingredient in that of, of like having a computer where you having pieces of hardware where you program the hardware and then you can use those to interface with other pieces of hardware without needing a driver. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that's kind of my vision of, of why that's useful or interesting. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, this was something we ran into at Dynamic Land a little bit, where you have this room with a bunch of projectors and cameras and a bunch of computers, right? And so one of, one of the questions is, okay, how do you talk to a camera? Like, how do you, like, you have a camera pointed at a table so it can see pages. Like, how do you get the pictures from the camera into your software on your computer? And the answer is, like, you have to, you know, you have the, the cameras, like, plugged into your USB, USB port, and then you have to ask Linux. You have to know, like, certain APIs in Linux, and you ask it, like, oh, can you give me the image from the camera? And it's, like, actually very complicated. Like, you need to get a lot of things right for that to work. You know, you're, you're relying on this huge stack of, you know, million, Linux is millions of lines of code, and the drivers a ton of code and you know you don't have control of a lot of things that you might want to have control of like the timing and the compression and all this other stuff and so if you if you controlled your own hardware you could run it at the speed that you need and you could have it talk in the protocols that you want to be able to communicate with pieces of hardware like that or at least that, that that's kind of the dream and it would be the, the dream would be that it would be a much simpler like end-to-end -end system because you wouldn't need Linux and you wouldn't need these weird drivers and you you know you wouldn't need to have exactly the right pieces of hardware because you could just have these pieces of clay sitting in the middle of your system that you like transfigured to do the job that you need them to do. It sounds like I'm going to have to have you back on the show at some point <laughs> once you once you spend a bunch of time in these systems and learn more about them. Um, all that stuff sounds really fun. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Omar. This is a really uh -huh. fun conversation. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. This is really a good excuse to dive deep into your work, <laughs> which, you know, I've always found it super interesting and it's always been fun to talk about, but it doesn't happen organically. So thank you. See you soon, I hope. Thanks. 